0: I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to the scripture passage we will consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 25. As you can tell, we are returning to our series in and through the book of Isaiah, and it's been some time since we uh, looked at a passage from Isaiah, so I'll give a brief uh, summary of where we are in the book, and at the risk of being overly simple, we have seen So far in the book of Isaiah, basically the tale of two cities. On the one hand, we have God's city versus the city of man. And this tale, as we've been looking at it, is not one that is black and white. It's not so simple. It's not just the good guys versus the bad guys. Rather, we saw in the earlier chapters how God, well, He spoke to His city, the city of Jerusalem, and spoke about its corruption, and spoke against the city of Jerusalem, how God was going to judge them for their various rebellious ways, for their lack of love for him and devotion to him, and also their lack of love to one another. And God was going to judge them, how? We saw. By letting other nations, particularly the Assyrians and the Babylonians, come and overtake Israel and Jerusalem for a time for a time because God also we saw was promising in the future to lift up his city from the ashes the shoot would rise up from the stump of Jesse and that he God would bless his people with a final deliverance and salvation that would be glorious now what about the city of man well we've seen how God would judge all the nations of the world for their pride their greed, their lust for power, and their oppression. But Isaiah also showed us, as we saw many judgments and oracles against the nations, how God's plan was also to bring his salvation to the nations, as he had promised to Abraham, that through Abraham all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And so in the end, the city of God, under the rule of the Davidic king in that future, that is Jesus, would not be filled with just Jewish believers, according to Isaiah, but rather believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we found that all those who by faith and repentance joined God's city would be saved, whereas all those who in their stubborn pride stayed in the city of man would perish. And that leads us to our text this morning in Isaiah 25. We'll read the whole chapter here. Listen to the word of the Lord. O Lord, you are my God. I exalt you. I praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. In the high fortifications of his walls, he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. O Holy Spirit, you... Many years ago, inspired, filled, and equipped your prophet Isaiah to pen these very words. And throughout the generations, you have preserved your word in faithfulness to bring it to us today. Lord, we ask that now you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word into our hearts. May it cause a deep impression therein, giving us hope and faith in christ our lord who has given us the victory through his life death and resurrection lord work upon our hearts through your word this morning we pray and ask in jesus name amen well as we all know life is full of many challenges and trials from natural disasters that we see about on the news to personal trauma that some of us have experienced in life, to the day-to-day problems that hit us unexpectedly, right? Each day is filled with its problems that we uh, cannot predict or expect. And such problems that face us often are surmountable in the sense that we can climb and even crawl over them and, and press on. But there is one big problem that is before each and every one of us that we cannot climb or crawl around or get over. It is not surmountable. What is that problem? It is death. It is death. It is coming for all of us. In fact, every problem, every setback, every injustice that we face each day is a reminder that death is fast approaching. That death will open up its mouth and swallow us all. So what can give us strength to press on and to face that great enemy, death? Well, we find the answer in our text this morning. If you belong to the Lord God by faith, He promises, He promises to swallow up death forever. And that promise strengthens us to face each and every trial, even death itself, with a living hope that lifts us up As we consider this passage this morning and that hope that we cling to in Christ, we'll see three points. First, the Lord of victims. Second, the Lord of victory. And thirdly, the Lord of vengeance. First, the Lord of victims. You know, in these first five verses, Isaiah is reflecting upon this idea. That even though the Lord's people in this world suffer great opposition at the hands of ruthless men, God sustains them through all trouble and he will deliver them in the end from all evil because he is the Lord of victims. He is near to those who suffer. Now by that I do not mean that the Lord is near to each and every poor and needy person in the world. That's not what I mean. That's not what Isaiah is saying here. This text, rather, is reminding us that true adherents of the biblical religion, true followers of Jesus Christ in this world, are often victims of strong and ruthless nations and the peoples of the world. God's people throughout the ages, when we consider this, have generally suffered at the hand of ruthless men and people with power all throughout the generations. And in Isaiah's day, this was true. God's people of Israel, they were a small nation, oppressed often by their neighbors. The Israelites were victims. And therefore we can say the Lord was a, the Lord of victims. He was their God. He was with them in and through that. Also, when we consider the early church, the Christian church was a small and oppressed people group, especially by the Roman Empire who had all of the power and influence in their day and Christians for a time were great victims. Therefore, God is the Lord of victims here. Now, how does Isaiah respond to this reality, this great injustice of oppression that he and his people faced? Does he simply complain to God? Does he hate the Lord his God for allowing his people to suffer in life? No. Well, look at verse 4. He praises the Lord God for being a stronghold to the poor, stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. He's able to praise God even in the midst of his suffering. You know, how How did Isaiah come to such a place of being able to praise God even when he was going through a rough, difficult time of real oppression in the world? It's because of this, he knows that the Lord, his God, is the one who always sustains his people, who always bears up his people through suffering and will ultimately save them from all evil in the end. And that's why Isaiah begins this chapter here, in the first opening verses, by praising the Lord, his God. And what does he exalt and glorify God for? Look back at verse 1. He says, For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So in the midst of difficult times, Isaiah is taking comfort in the Lord's plans for him. He knows that God is faithful. He knows that his plans are faithful and sure. And so the Lord of his victim people is the one who has planned the end from the very beginning. God knows the plans that he has for his people. Through all trouble, he plans to sustain them, to save them, and ultimately prosper them in glory in the end. We find that in his suffering, Isaiah here, he's able to lift up his head. He's not overly pulled down by his suffering because he knew to whom he belonged. He belonged to the Lord, the one who is near to his brokenhearted people, and those who suffer, the needy, and the weak in this world. This meant that even though his own life circumstances were frustratingly unfair and unstable, that God was his stronghold and his shelter. And that applies to you as well, Christian. In your time of difficulty and stress, you belong to him who is your stronghold and your shelter, shade at your right hand. Isaiah belonged to the God who promised final deliverance, and so do we. This relates so much to us. Remember that our Lord Jesus, He never promises to us as His followers an easy life of bliss in this world. Rather, Jesus promises to His disciples final glory in future, after times of suffering and persecution in the present, a glory that will far outweigh the present sufferings of this evil age. This is what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you you see jesus promises us that in this life we will face sufferings of various kinds and even persecution for his name's sake but there is glory that is awaiting us to come when he returns now as we consider that reality does this mean that christianity takes the side of everything that is weak everything that is base and everything that has failed in this world Does this mean that the God of the Bible contradicts a strong life? Well, that's precisely the main critique that the atheist thinker Nietzsche laid at the feet of Christianity. This is what he said. Nietzsche said, Christianity has taken the side of everything weak, base, failed. It has made an ideal out of whatever contradicts the preservation instincts of a strong life. What do we say to that critique? Well, we should say this, that Nietzsche's critique would be right if we didn't have the promise of victory in the next part of this chapter. If we believe that God is only the Lord of Victims, then yes, that thinking would create an ideal out of weakness. A mere Lord of Victims would not inspire anyone to persevere with strength through trials. But he is more than that. And we see that in this text. Our God is also the Lord of victory. And that's our second point. We find in the heart of this passage how Isaiah trusted in the strength of the Lord to show up in the future and to grant his people the final victory, even over death. It is this truth about God, his promise to deliver his people, that kept Isaiah from the trap of a defeated victim mentality. Victim mentality. We hear a lot about that today in our culture, right? Lots of people in our culture currently are obsessed with the victim mentality. Far too many, especially younger generations, are falling into the pit of despair and sorrow because why? They identify as victims in life and they really don't have any hope to lift them out of that place of their sufferings but notice here that on the one hand isaiah acknowledges in the opening of the passage the real oppression and the real injustice that god's people experienced he acknowledges it he admits that they were real victims isaiah doesn't just say to himself and to israel suck it up and move on that's not his message There was real injustice, there was real suffering, there was real pain, and he acknowledges that. But notice as well that Isaiah doesn't stay there, does he? He doesn't stay ruminating, sitting, and wallowing in his victim mentality. He doesn't let his own suffering have the final word about who he is and his final destination. Why? Because he belongs to his God who is also the Lord of victory. My friends, do you go to that hope in your distress and your problems and your own particular sufferings? Each of us have our own experiences of sorrows. Do you go to that hope that you belong to the Lord of victory, victory even over sin and death itself? How do you keep your head above water when life is pulling you down in so many ways with the weight of your burdens, your obligations, and sufferings? Look, like Isaiah here, Christians should not deny the suffering that we face in this world. We do, in fact, swim in a sea of injustice because humans are sinners. There is all kinds of evil in the world. And if you deny suffering and weakness and try just to overpower every obstacle by your own stubborn pride and acting as if it doesn't exist, that can only get you so far. That is not a permanent solution to overcome and persevere through sufferings in this world. Because in this sea of evil, there is always a bigger fish, right, swallowing up the smaller fish. The show Yellowstone, we hear this reality express where this phrase comes out, there are sharks and minnows in this world. And if you don't know which one you are, you ain't a shark. That's how this world functions. And in fact, Nietzsche would say amen to that. Let the strong stomp on the weak in order to improve the human race. But herein lies the problem for Nietzsche and for all who like him mock the Lord of victims. It doesn't matter how strong and powerful you become in life. It doesn't matter how much wealth and influence you acquire in life. Why? Because there is, as Isaiah says, a covering that hangs over the head of the human race, a weighted blanket that we cannot escape from, the covering of death, the veil of mortality, No matter how much humans try, they have not and will never be able to beat death on their own. The veil of death awaits the rich Americans as much as it awaits the poor Africans. As strong Nietzsche wanted to be in life, think of this, he was not strong enough to beat death. Nietzsche himself, during his last years, he lost his ability to care for himself. He was admitted into a psychiatric hospital where his mind devolved into a profound dementia. And at the age of 44, Nietzsche died alone in loneliness in the Swiss Alps from pneumonia. Nietzsche became the very thing that he despised, a weak, lonely, depressed man. And like all others, Nietzsche fell as well under the covering of death, and his remains today are now buried in Germany. He could not beat death, and neither can you. You see, death is that big fish that will swallow us all up. No one can escape the megalodon, the great shark death. Before death, all, all are minnows. Doesn't matter how powerful, strong you are in this world, all are minnows. So denying or ignoring suffering Like Nietzsche tried to do, just being a strong man is not a solution. It can only get you so far until you face death. So what hope do we have? Like Isaiah, the hope is this, that we belong to the Lord of victory. You see, in contrast with Nietzsche, who fell into his despair because of his weakness, the inherent weakness that is in all of us, Isaiah was able to persevere through his weakness. Why? Because Isaiah's grit, his strength, his fortitude did not come from himself, but it came from the Lord who promises to swallow up death forever. You see, our hope, our hope in God does not make us weaker. That's what Nietzsche's critique was. He said a Christian faith makes people weak. No, it's the opposite. Hope in God, the God of the victory over death, makes us stronger. It gives us the strength to persevere through trials of various kinds in life with that hope that we belong to the one who will swallow up death forever. Now, what does that mean, that promise? It means, briefly, that God will get the victory over death for his people so that death will no longer hang over them. God was promising to destroy death, right? But how? What does Isaiah say? What's the word? What's the verb? By doing what? By swallowing up death. Think of that. Think about that. When you swallow water or medicine or food, what are you doing? You're taking that thing into your body, into yourself. You see, God here is promising to take death into himself in order to destroy death. It's like he is saying, I will take the death sentence of poison to save my people from it. I will throw myself onto the grenade and die in order to save my people from death. I will take the punishment of death in order to give my people life. This was the promise of hope that Isaiah was clinging to. And it gave him strength to lift up his head and press on, knowing that he belonged to the one who would deliver his people. But was Isaiah right in this hope? Was this an empty hope? Can God really swallow up death forever? That is a serious question. Yes, Isaiah was right. How do we know he was right? How do we know that his hope was not empty? How do we know that God really does have the power to swallow up death forever? Jesus of Nazareth proved it for us. How? First, Jesus died. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He beat death. Jesus is the Lord our God. He is the one promised about here in this passage who came to swallow up death for us. On the cross, Jesus took the death sentence that we deserve into his body. Think of this, on the tree where he suffered in our place the punishment for our sins. And when it looked like death had swallowed up Jesus, the Lord of life, his disciples, what did they do? They wrapped his body in linens on that day the veil of death covered the lifeless body of the lord our god in human flesh it looked as if god had failed to keep his promise that we find here in isaiah it looked as if he was not the lord of victory but in fact the lord of failure that's what it appeared to be even to his disciples who did not fully understand at that time they did not fully see What God's plan was. His plan that he had from the beginning. God's plan all along was to destroy death from the inside out. Victory over death would be an inside job. The Puritan John Owen brilliantly summarizes God's plan all along saying this, that God planned the death of death in the death of Christ. Now how does that make sense? How did Jesus put to death death by dying? How did that work? Well, it only makes sense when we realize what power death has over each and every one of us. Why must we all die? Why is there a covering of death over you and over me that both the rich and the poor cannot escape no matter how strong or wise you become in life? Why? Well, the answer is our sin your sin, and the justice of God. Because from the very beginning, humanity has sinned against its creator. We deserve the punishment of death. That's what the Bible clearly says. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam in the beginning, when you eat of that fruit, if you do, you will surely die. And so what power does death have over us? It is the power of God's justice. The power of God's law. How can we escape from the justice of God which demands our death? Well, the only solution is found here in this text, in this promise that God would swallow up death. We see that in God, in taking on our human flesh, in the person of Jesus, He paid that full price of God's justice in our place when He took the sentence of death into His body, swallowing it up and dying in our place suffering what we deserve in order to free us, deliver us, and give us more as well. Not only to forgive us and to free us from the condemnation that hung over us and death's power, but also he promised, as Isaiah declares here with great joy, the feast, the great feast, banquet feast in his presence forevermore. That's what Isaiah talks about when he describes the glory to come. It's like this table that is spread out with food, rich food, aged wine, a feast where we're there with friends and loved ones and with God himself, best of all, a feast of victory. Beloved, if you believe in Jesus this morning, trust that he has swallowed up death for you so that you will not be swallowed up by death forever. Trust that you too will rise again from the dead with Jesus when he returns. Believe that Jesus was wrapped in the linens of death and laid in the tomb so that he would lay out the linens of the tablecloth of that banquet feast in glory and invite you to sit with him, not with fear of death, but there he will wipe away all our tears and we will enjoy his rich presence in the glory of his resurrection. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. It's not just this heavenly afterlife, this immaterial, out-of-body kind of existence. No, he's talking about resurrected life, a life in which we'll have the joyous pleasure of eating food in the blessed company of loved ones where God will wipe away our tears and fill our hearts with the satisfaction of endless joy and gladness. But for whom is this promise laid out? Is it just for Isaiah? Is it just for Israel? Look back at verse 6 in our passage where Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for whom? All peoples. All peoples. That is a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation Isaiah foresees here will be gathered together at the table of the Lord. This promise of victory over death belongs to all who follow Jesus by faith all who suffer as victims of persecution for His namesake in the world. This promise is for all who belong to the Lord, who is the Lord of victory. And lastly, we consider very briefly here, He is also the Lord of vengeance. And we find that in verses 10 to 12. We see in the very end of this passage that God makes a separation between those who belong to the Lord by faith and those who in stubborn pride refuse Him. Give Him the stiff arm like the nation Moab. Now, Moab is mentioned here because it was a nation that neighbored Israel, God's people, and for centuries they were God's enemies. God had offered salvation. We look back at this in chapter 16. Salvation to the Moabites through the Davidic king. If you would just submit to King David's descendant, you will be saved and delivered. Did they respond? Did they accept that invitation, that offer of salvation? No. They refused in stubborn pride. They had to face life and its challenges alone. And what we read about here, at the end, in chapter 25 here, it shows us the consequence of that choice. Moab is used as an example of stubborn pride that refuses to accept God's offer of salvation, which goes out to any and all. Therefore, if you today reject the salvation of the Lord, if you reject King Jesus, here the warning that you will be taken down by the Lord. We find that the Lord's hand, on one hand, rests, rests upon his people to comfort them with the joy of his salvation, to give them victory like a father's hand resting and blessing his child. But on the other hand, we see the Lord's hand of judgment will come down upon those who refuse his offer of salvation And the final images here are striking, even of stubborn sinners swimming through a sewer of shame, still refusing to accept God's offer of salvation, and he declares that God will bring them down to the dust in their pride. If you do not repent and believe in Jesus as your only hope, then you will not face the God of victory come death, but you will face the God of vengeance, of justice, You will face his final judgment which will be exacting and unrelenting. He will not let sin go unpunished. If you do not trust in Jesus, then that is what is before you. Be warned. But, beloved of the Lord, if you believe in Jesus, trust, trust that he has already swallowed up the power of death for you. If you believe in Jesus, death has lost its sting and its power is no longer over you. And hear what Jesus says to us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Do you believe this? Is what Jesus asks us. Hear his question. Do you believe he is the resurrection and the life? That he has the power over death? Christians, even though we will die like everyone else, death will not hold us down forever because you belong to him who is the resurrection and the life. Trust in him, and by faith in Jesus, have that hope that will instill strength in you to persevere through your trials, knowing that you belong to the Lord of victory, who will even give you victory over death itself. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this glorious passage in Isaiah chapter 25, and we could spend many moons here considering all the truths and all the promises that are found therein even the warnings as well but Lord we thank you for this time together to meditate on your word and we ask that the truths that we have so found in your passage that you O spirit would impress them upon our hearts as seeds pressed into the soil of the earth and Lord we ask not only that but that you, O Spirit, would give the increase to that seed, that you might produce faith, faith that produces hope in us, to give us the strength to press on, knowing that we belong to him who is the resurrection and the life, who is coming back again, to judge, the living and the dead, who is coming back to prepare for us that feast of glory. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. loved ones, let's uh, stand and respond.